This Bio Startup News podcast is sponsored by Miss Pro Biotech Services, North America's most trusted contract vivarium. Are we in your biotech hub? Find out more at MissProBiotech.com. I'm Daniel Levine, and this is the Bio Startup News Podcast. Johannes Fruhoff has great visibility into the changing landscape for life sciences startups as a seasoned entrepreneur, a venture investor, and co-founder and president of the biotech startup co-working space, Biolabs. While the public market downturn has changed the financing environment, it hasn't slowed the pace of entrepreneurs looking to translate breakthrough science into commercial enterprises. We spoke to Fruhoff about the landscape for biotech startups today, the key challenges bioentrepreneurs face, and how they can best position themselves for success. Johannes, thanks for joining us. Hey, Danny. Thank you for having me. I look forward to the discussion. We're going to talk about biotech startups, biolabs, and what the pain points are today for entrepreneurial biotechs. Before we talk about Biolabs specifically, though, I, I wanted to ask you about the state of biotech entrepreneurship. What's the environment today for a biotech entrepreneur looking to launch a new company? Oh, man, you should have asked me that a year ago because it was <laughs> great and now it's not. Um, so the, the, honest, the honest answer is that times have changed uh, very significantly since... Uh, 2021. And uh, it's now a much harder time for people to find funding than it used to be. Um, I think we are in a correction cycle that's probably a little overly conservative. Uh, but but right now, it's not, it's not great for people to find funding. All of that said, though, um, the situation is much more supportive in general for um, scientists starting, wanting to start um, translational companies based on their science, becoming entrepreneurs, because we have much better infrastructure and we have much better understanding of the mechanics of translation than even 10 or 15 years ago. For the last several years, this was a sector awash in cash. With the market downturn, we've seen financing activity dry up, but What's the availability for seed and early stage capital today? And, and has that changed? Have valuations moved? And while there have been a lot of money moving into the sector, always, oftentimes that goes in very concentrated ways. So yeah. ha- has the environment really changed that dramatically for startups? It's interesting. Thank you. It's interesting to see. Um, so the malaise really started in the public sector biotechs that are, that are traded on the public stock market. And if you look in aggregate, um, the these indices, these biotech indices are down by 65 or 70% off of their highs that they uh, realized sometime last year. And 
So that is interesting because it creates a domino effect and sort of a knock-on effect that, that moves further into the market. And as you know, uh, these private venture-funded startups, they are typically launched with a seed financing and then a Series A, Series B, sometimes Series C, private venture financings. Ultimately, many of them try to uh, become a public company by making an initial public offering an IPO and, and then they become public companies. And so for the last several years, the private markets were having a blast, having a good party because there was a very clear exit path for investors and, and a pathway for entrepreneurs to finance their companies through the IPO opportunity and the public markets at the back end. Now that we are seeing the public markets taking such a beating and no longer uh, an opportunity for, for companies to go public very easily. That now has, as I said, a knock-on effect on the early stages as well, which depresses the appetite for venture capitalists to get in the game. It depresses valuations. It slows down the discussions. And while hot biotech uh, startups were able to get lots of term sheets and lots of investors who were scrambling to get into their rounds, even last year, now the opposite is true. And uh, even very good teams and very good technologies are having a hard time getting financed. So we are seeing cyclical market um, at work here. And I'm sure it's it's worse now than it will be in a, in a few months or a few years, but it's, it's not great right now. One of the things entrepreneurs often face is whether they're developing a product or a company. How would you distinguish the two? How, how can an entrepreneur determine whether they've got a company or just a product? Yeah, I, I would differentiate that a little bit more. I think they all have companies, right? Um, I would say they have a, either a single product or they have a potential for a platform. Um, all of these are developed inside of companies, right? Um, but so if you have a platform that allows your company to have multiple shots on go, and maybe if the first go around doesn't work, then you have an underlying technology that enables you to, to try another approach. We often see that with uh, enabling technologies. For example, CRISPR comes to mind, right? You know that CRISPR is one of these tools that were discovered in the last 10 years and that can be applied to many different applications. So if you have a company built around a technology like CRISPR or many similar other companies, uh, other technologies, then you have what we call a platform company that can develop multiple products. We do also see uh, entrepreneurs launching single product companies they, where they have one thing, maybe they got it through a license, uh, maybe a, a molecule that some other pharmaceutical company uh, um, discontinued the program and they got that one thing that they can develop. Uh, the difference between the two is, of course, uh, advantages and disadvantages. The redundancy of options that you have with a platform company is nice to have because if one program fails, you have a second one. At the same time, the focus that you can have if you just have a single product to develop is also oftentimes beneficial and you can then focus all of your attention on making this one thing work. There's always changing appetites in the market whether and certain investors prefer uh, very focused approaches and other investors prefer platform companies. So if you 
if you are an inventor and you have made a discovery, it's worthwhile looking at the portfolio of your preferred VCs and look at what flavor of companies they've backed and what flavor of companies they've been successful with. Uh, VCs tend to use pattern recognition a lot. So if you are a product company that has a single product, very focused program, then you should try and find investors who have been successful with that strategy in the past. They're more likely to like you than others who have uh, been most successful with platform companies and vice versa. One way to attract capital is to de-risk an investment. Are there some basic steps entrepreneurs can take to de-risk their ventures so they can better attract capital? Yeah. Um, I think it's very important for them to think about that. And, and oftentimes we work with first-time founders who are excellent scientists, experts in their fields, discovered new biology. But that's not all it takes to build a successful company. And, and once they go out of the, to the market and try to raise money for it, oftentimes it's a harsh awakening coming out of a world-class institution where you've been a professor and, and, and you thought that, that you know everything about your field, but now you're starting a company. So I, the advice that we give entrepreneurs is to think of the science as a nucleus and the one very important component, but not the sole important component of a successful company. And you will attract, you will increase your chances in your discussions with venture capitalists and you'll attract more capital if you take these approaches and think about it needs a team. It doesn't just need the inventor. It needs a whole team of talent to make a therapeutic or to make a diagnostic. Uh, I often compare this to a relay race uh, where you have many people who need to touch uh, this in order to ultimately reach the finish line. To, and it needs a, a diverse set of talents not just the initial in invention, but also diligent program development, clinical development, preclinical development, fundraising, partnering, etc. So you need to build a good team. You need to also um, understand the market that you're going in. Uh, oftentimes, uh, we see groups struggle with fundraising if they have a very elegant technology, but they haven't really done the work of exploring the product market fit. So... Uh, they they need to understand and go to these meetings with investors with a very good conceptual understanding of what need in the marketplace is my product going to solve. Um, you need to think about who will pay for this. Um, is there a, a reimbursement code for this? What is the motivation for physicians to prescribe this? Some very good drugs of very desirable medical solutions are not economically viable because there's no incentive for physicians to prescribe them or there's no reimbursement available to pay for them. And so some very good ideas die on the vine and can get no funding because the teams haven't thought these questions through. And the last point, if you want to be able to attract venture investment is you also need to be able to tell a good story. Stories do attract people. And so spend some time, invest in making it simple uh, to explain your, your complicated biology, your complicated science, so that 
the audience is captivated by it and wants to help you develop it to success. I want to expand a little on, on what you were saying about scientific founders and, and building teams with different talents. Biotechs are often founded by scientists who may have little or no managerial or financial experience. Are there steps they can take to address this? And at what point do they need to think about bringing in other talent that might be better suited for building and running a company? Yeah. Um, I've, I found myself in the same situation many times, right? When I'm, I started out as a <clears throat> physician and scientist and realized that I, I needed to have other people help me to build these companies that I, that I was thinking about, it, it, it's never too early to think about joining forces with other smart people. Um, ideally, you'll, you'll start with your, your friends and think about that, but, but a bunch of friends who like each other aren't often sufficiently talented or they don't, they don't have enough uh, diverse viewpoint to cover all the uh, bases. If you're a scientist at an academic institution thinking about founding a company, I would recommend that you hang out at places where entrepreneurs go, that you go to gatherings, seminars, lectures. Uh, there are lots of biotech clubs. So I, I grew up in my entrepreneurial career here in Boston. There was a Harvard Biotech Club and an MIT Biotech Club. These are places where students and postdocs and faculty members can go and get closer to this entrepreneurial world, learn the new lingo, learn the new logic. Uh, or if you're, if you're near one of our facilities, you can go and attend the events that we offer at Lab Central or at Biolabs on a very regular basis. And we, we see how this immersion in the new thinking uh, is so helpful as smart individuals make the transition from a basic scientist who's a subject matter expert in one scientific area to an entrepreneur who's able to think about the many other components that affect the success or failure of their idea, including financing, market, team, regulatory, intellectual property, and so on. Part of being an entrepreneur is being able to see unexpected opportunities when they present themselves. I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about how Biolabs came about. You're both a, an entrepreneur and a venture investor. You were working on a synthetic biology startup when Biolabs began to emerge organically. Can, can you explain how it came to be? Yeah, uh, you're right. You're absolutely right. I So I was a co-founder of a company in the mid-2000s that was called Sequin, and we sold that in 2010. And with a friend of mine, we had this idea of starting a new sort of Synthetic biology company was called by Thera. There are still remnants of it on the internet, but uh, to, to take the punchline ahead of time, it, it failed in the end. We had a cool idea of arming my, um, probiotic bacteria with anti-inflammatory genes so that they would secrete anti-inflammatory proteins. And the idea was to treat inflammatory conditions in the skin or in the gut. Um, long story short, we started this company in 2000. 10, which was just a few years after the bad financial crisis. And it was very, very hard at the time for entrepreneurs to raise capital. Uh, we, in order to pay for the rent and for the salaries of my scientists, 
I needed to create a source of revenue because we couldn't raise venture money at the time. Uh, we got actually we got a little bit of money from J and J, which was we are still grateful for uh, in a research collaboration. But then, in order to create some cash flow, we started contract work and we built sort of a contract research organization, a CRO called called BioLabs, and that worked very closely with local VCs who had projects that they wanted to pressure test. We we worked with nearly all of the local VCs in Boston to, to test and diligence scientific projects for them. Many of these projects became very prominent companies and, and many of the household names of, of companies that you have heard about, uh, actually we had our hands on um, in the early 2010s. Um, while these things became projects, became companies, they needed some lab space, and we had lab space. We had our own lab that was equipped and filled, and we had procurement, and we had people. And so we found, found a way to share the cost by renting space to these people, or giving them a bench for a month or two when they needed it before they had their own space. And before you knew it, I, I got people calling me and brokers calling me and saying, hey, I, I hear you're renting lab space. And I didn't even know that I was renting lab space. I was just running my own startup and, and trying to make ends meet by, by doing services for people. And, but then quickly we realized that there was a real need in the market for smart people who wanted, who had great ideas and wanted a, a place because you can't do a startup in your kitchen. You can't do it in your garage. They needed a place to do this and word got around that they could do it with us at BioLabs. And so ultimately the business model pivoted. From, from being a service-based um, scientific service provider to providing space and environment for smart people to innovate. And we've optimized this now. We've built what is the largest network of such facilities, starting in Boston, but now also East Coast, West Coast. We're also now launching in Dallas and in Yale and in Chicago, and also overseas in Europe with two locations so far in Germany and, and in, in France. And we have over... 400 startups that use our services uh, today and uh, companies are typically with us only for about two years. So very quickly, we were able to develop after after we saw this market signal of, of the need by the smart innovators to just have a place and a community in which to develop their ideas. We were able to scale that and answer, answer that need. And, and it's one that keeps on growing very, very quickly. People throw around terms like incubators and accelerators in the biotech space. There are many different models within that that range what, from what I'd call a, a pure play real estate organization to investment-driven models at the other end. Biolabs doesn't use this terminology, but describes itself as a co-working space for life science startups. Where does Biolabs fit into this world? Yeah, um, I think based on based on our history, right? Like we are scientists ourselves, we are innovators a priori, and we are only learning about real estate sort of from that perspective. And I think that does set us apart quite a bit from the people like Alexandria or Biomed Realty who who know buildings and they know financing for buildings and concrete and they know long leases and They've, they've actually failed to address for a long time the need of the innovative companies who need flexibility, who need space to grow or to shrink 
when their businesses and, and the fates of their businesses change. And so that's where we fit in. We, we describe Biolabs and Lab Central. I run these two organizations side by side. And we describe them as uh, uh, the two things, like physical infrastructure, where we provide the best possible support for innovators to be efficient with their time and their capital and community. So I, I use this sentence uh, to describe what I do or what we do, which is we want to reduce friction and increase collisions. So reducing friction means we want to have all of the equipment that they need uh, to do their science. Hopefully we'll have anticipated all of the equipment needs at any of our facilities. And we'll have labs that are 100% operated and supported so they can really focus on doing the science. We have people taking care of safety. We have people taking care of procurement, trash, etc. And And we, so that reduces friction. And now you can really focus on, on getting data. That's the value. At the same time, we, re, we, we increase collisions and we bring people together. We build communities. We curate communities of smart people where they can mingle and find collaborators, find partners. And that has become a recipe for success that people like to like to join us in each of our cities that we're in. And if, if you were to think in terms of the challenges that uh, a bio entrepreneur is facing, what problems does Biolab solve? Uh, a priori, we, we lower the bar significantly for people to start companies. Uh, when, when we started our first company, we had to raise millions of dollars to even before we could even run our first experiment. This was in the 2000s, right? I went out and looked for space. I met with brokers, found some spaces, had to negotiate a lease, had no idea on how to negotiate a lease, right? Like scientists going out to start companies, then had to find contractors who would renovate the lab, paint, uh, build, architects, lots of activity, lots of churn without creating data. And if you think about the the value of biotech, it's really data. A company will get bought because they have good results. A company will get a partnership with a big pharmaceutical company because they have promising scientific progress. So all they, their currency is data. They need to create, they need to run experiments, find new things, create data. They don't really need to own a flow cytometer. They don't need to own the lab bench. They need the functionality of it. And so that's the problem we're solving for them. And for the founders, we solve the problem of the transition between two worlds because they're coming out of the academic world for the most part, and they now need to succeed in the entrepreneurial world that requires them to learn a new language and a new logic and a new work ethic that's different. And through community, we, we help solve that. How has the situation changed for founders over the last 10 or 15 years? Yeah, um, I think it's really become much easier uh, for distributed discovery efforts like that to um, to be successful and for founders to do the things that used to just be done inside of big pharmaceutical companies. Um, of course, we talk about biolabs uh, where they can do discovery, but there are now many other service providers as well, consultants who can take on specific functions uh, like regulatory support or um, contract vivarium organizations like our friends at MISPRO who have multiple labs around the country where people can go in and do their in vivo experiments without having to build their own animal facility or 
uh, other contract uh, organizations where they can do analytical uh, method development without having to to do it in house. So I think uh, life has much improved, and we're moving to a world where discovery is much more distributed uh, rather than aggregated. And we have a number of service providers that can that can help there and make the uh, process much more efficient. Does Biolabs take all comers? Is there an application process someone has to go through where their business plan is part of the consideration? Yeah, actually, we're very selective. We have um, an acceptance rate that's less than, I think, 25% on average. In some cases, uh, um, it's only one out of five. So any anyone can apply at any of our biolabs locations or lab central locations anytime. If you go to any of our websites, you will see an apply now button. And then we'll ask you a, a series of questions on the website. They're basic questions to tease out sort of what the company is about. Uh, what's the science? Who's on the team? How do they expect to make a business out of that science? We, and, and ultimately, have they been able to raise any financing? Um, these, these four questions, and, and from whom? Right. These four questions help us really define what the type is. This a company that fits into our ecosystem? Is this a company who we can help? Uh, we we really want to work with groups that we can actually provide value for, and um, and then we would typically invite them for an in person or nowadays it's by Zoom um, presentation, and, and we do that every month at every location. So uh, my team screens hundreds of companies a year. Uh, I think we have over a thousand applications per year. And um, we see them in person or through Zoom. And then each company gets a half an hour to present. Uh, those selection committees are oftentimes stocked with venture investors, pharmaceutical partners, us founders. And so you you have a, a, an immediate feedback for the company. If they get rejected, they get, they get a, hopefully a very productive note of where they could tweak their presentation. And if they get accepted, they will have passed a certain bar uh, to get admitted to our community. Beyond the shared workspace and facilities, would you say there's a value add that Biolabs provides? Yeah, I think think the network, if, if you join any one of our communities, you will immediately be able to explode your network. Um, we work with now 18 of the 20 largest pharmaceutical companies. I think it's the running tally. We, we, it changes all the time. But that means these pharma companies are sponsors of our network. They come to the sites. They do events. They look for ideas. Of course, um, the pharma folks are coming to fill their external innovation pipeline and to find investments for their corporate venture capital groups. So that's one huge benefit from being part of our community. We also see many companies collaborating uh, who are at the same site. Uh, they share cell lines or there are many opportunities for entrepreneurs and first-time entrepreneurs or employees of the startups to learn about the business of biotech. Uh, we, we do very, very regular events. So again, pre-COVID, we had events at least every day, sometimes several per day. Uh, during COVID, this has slowed down. We're now ramping back up. Um, but scientific events, speaker series where we bring in investors, where we bring in lawyers to talk about employment, IP, negotiation, term sheets, financing, 
um, BD groups from pharmaceutical companies, uh, technical seminars. Uh, so there's lots and lots and lots of intangible uh, value from being part of this community um, that that um, entrepreneurs and scientists will benefit from. You, you touched a, a bit on this, but you know, I'm, I imagine there's an opportunity for unexpected collaboration, just depending on who else is in the space you're sharing. I'm wondering from a cultural point of view, you know, is there an openness to helping each other out, to looking for potential alliances with the folks that surround them? Yeah, yeah, Danny, I think uh, there's a lot of opportunity also beyond the seminars that we offer uh, for cross-fertilization. And I believe that the peer-to-peer learning uh, is is some of the most beneficial. Uh, we do a lot of events. Uh, we invite, we regularly invite panels of VCs to come and talk. We have uh, business plan competitions. We have lawyers come in. We have groups, uh, business development groups and scouts from the big pharmaceutical companies coming in. But in each case, these also provide an opportunity for the startups to meet each other and the teams to have moments of peer learning from each other. And uh, that's hugely valuable. Imagine you're trying to raise a round or you're trying to get an introduction to the business development group for neuroscience at Pfizer, right? Uh, if you're at, at one of our labs and there are 25 other startups or even here, uh, if you're at Lab Central, there are 65 other startups around you. Chances are that that some people know exactly who you need to talk to and that they will be able to give you a personal introduction to that. Uh, so that's a huge additional benefit from being at, at one of our locations. Are companies required to graduate at some point? Can they remain within the biolab space indefinitely? Absolutely, they have to graduate. Uh, so that's another big difference uh, between the standard real estate model and what we do. We are in the innovation business. And so we want to help as many founders and as many entrepreneurs as possible. So typically we limit the tenure, if you will, of any company to two years. They can apply for a third year. But there will be very, very few exceptions to that rule. Um, And the reason is really that we want to see and we want to help and touch more companies rather than have one stable of companies that pay us rent. Our business is not the rent that we collect. Our business is the innovation that gets created. And that's what that that's what we are gonna foster. And then we help the we help the companies in their graduation. In some cases we actually build graduation labs. Those are places where they can then stay for longer. Um, that that's a program that we're now starting in some of our cities. Uh, but a priori um, in, in our initial co-working labs, uh, companies are for two or maximum three years. With the COVID pandemic, we've seen a rethinking of real estate needs and the way people work. How is this playing out in biotech and what are the implications for a place like Biolabs? I tell you, I was very scared when COVID hit and I was worried that we could have gone bankrupt um, if if the governments made us shut down our labs. But we were able to argue uh, and, and were heard that many of our companies were working on in fact, COVID-related science. We had a number of companies working on COVID vaccines or COVID tests or COVID therapeutics and and other life-saving pharmaceutical innovation. And so in every state, 
in every lab, we got permission to keep our labs open and productive during COVID. So we're very grateful uh, on that part. At the same time, then we and others realize that the lab work, while, while you and I can have a conversation from our desk and, and record it, we don't have to go into a studio. The lab work really has to be done in the labs. And that's the one part that continued without any interruption throughout the COVID pandemic. We, every day we had the labs open and we continued uh, doing science. Um, of course, many of the business parts were not happening at the labs. The conference rooms were deserted. Many of the offices weren't being used, but the labs continued to be productive and, and, and were very much used. And what's interesting is that now you see many more real estate groups trying to offer lab space because they see it's sort of a resilient uh, uh, offer to have. Um, but, but some of them do that without a lot of understanding of what lab space means. You're also a co-founder and general manager in Mission BioCapital, which provides early stage capital to life science entrepreneurs. What's the relationship between Mission Capital and Biolabs companies? Yeah, uh, so that's right. I'm a, uh, we started a venture capital fund. We, after we built the lab network, we realized, wow, we have dozens and now we have hundreds of companies that use us and we grow up with them and we know them really well. We go for lunch with them. We have beers with them. We, we cry with them and we celebrate with them. And so that's a great basis if you want to invest in early stage companies because Oftentimes, they don't have a product yet that they sell. They have no sales. There are no financials, really, to, to look at. It, it's team and technology, mostly. And so that becomes a great basis to invest. And we're now investing from our fifth fund. Um, the uh, fund is called Mission Biocapital. It currently has uh, seven, $275 million in the active fund. And we typically do seed and, and early stage seed and series A and series B investments. So any company, uh, so no company is required in order to be at Biolabs to take money from us. In fact, most, the vast majority of companies in our lab network aren't the portfolio companies of Mission Biocapital. Mission Biocapital is just another venture capital fund that they could potentially get funding from. And I think the advantage for them of being in our network is that they're known to me and my co-founders in the fund, to my partners, and that we look at them. We can make introductions with fellow investors or we can throw them over the fence to our own diligence uh, team and take a look at them. So we, we, are, we have a portfolio now of about 60 startups that we have invested in. But that's uh, after, we, uh, after looking at hundreds or, or several thousand companies over the years. Um, so it's a very, very small minority. Um, many, most companies who are in our labs have their capital invested from other investors. And that's totally fine. If and when we invest, we invest at the same terms like everybody else. We don't extract any uh, special terms or favors just because they're in the labs. And what's the general size of the investment you make? And, and what do you look for? in the companies you, you invest in? Yeah, uh, so per lifetime of the deal, we can make investments. We, we typically allocate between uh, sort of 15 to $20 million uh, for the lifetime of, of what we call a full-size investment. Um, that means 
we would we would typically start um we try to get in early we try to be the first or the second institutional money that the company raises um just because we are still a relatively small fund we need to place our chips early and um so we've we, we start we've done uh first checks as small as a quarter million dollars or five hundred thousand and as large as five million and and then we reserve follow-on investment accordingly and we often syndicate these deals where we lead them, we write the term sheet, we bring in other investors alongside with us. Uh, we have uh, co-invested now with, with really all of the brand name um, blue chip investors and also many of the uh, pharmaceutical strategic funds or the disease foundations. So I think um, we have quickly, this fund has only been around since uh, 2016. Um, I think we've been able, because of our, privilege access to the entrepreneurs to establish a good brand and a good reputation, an entrepreneur-friendly reputation uh, that other co-investors uh, like to come into deals with us. You've had uh, a remarkable vision into bio-entrepreneurship. I- I'm wondering, are-, are there common mistakes you've seen people make? Yeah, uh, yes. Um, after some time, you do develop a, a certain panel recognition. Um, uh, I think the, the, the key mistake we all make is that we have blind spots, right? We, we have certain areas that we feel very strong in, and then we don't really know the areas that we're weak in. And that's really my role as, as a mentor and as an investor in some of these companies, was even many times just as an observer and, and a peer is to point those out to them in a gentle way and in a way that it's not um, uh, sort of seen as aggressive or threatening and so that they don't reject the advice right away. Uh, but we do see uh, many teams that, that have gaping uh, holes in their capabilities or, or blind spots in their personalities. And um, so building, building a well-rounded team around the founder is, is often a way to mitigate that. And you don't, ideally you will keep the founder for a long time because they, they oftentimes are the most passionate person and the most visionary person. And then our role as investors or other supporters is to, to make them succeed and avoid um, failure. And what advice would you offer someone looking to launch a biotech today? I would, I would recommend they go to where it's easier to launch a biotech. So I would, of course, now I'm a little biased because I, I run biolabs at Lab Central, but I would strongly recommend you look at one of these facilities because what it will give you is not just a perfect physical environment where you can do your work and you don't have to now own all of this expensive capital equipment, but also a community of peers who will be supportive and who you can learn from and collaborate with. And starting a company is oftentimes very, very lonely. And there are not many people who understand your aunt and your grandma and your friends from school won't really understand the trouble that you're going through, the roller coaster that it means to be starting a company, the thrills and the frustration that can follow each other within the span of a day when you're starting a company. Uh, But so by being in one of these very supportive environments, um, life gets easier and, and we have seen companies overall an enormous success rate and a very low failure rate for companies that start in, in, this, in these environments. So that's what I would recommend. 
Johannes Fruhauf, founder and CEO of Biolabs and general partner and co-founder of Mission Biocapital. Johannes, thanks so much for your time today. Danny, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks for listening. The Bio Startup News podcast showcases important topics and notable leaders of life science startups. The podcast is produced by Bio Startup News, the weekly aggregator report that recaps the latest developments of U.S.-based life sciences startups. Bio Startup News is published by Big Bio Communications. For more information, go to biostartup.news. This podcast is produced for Biostartup News by the Levine Media Group. Music for this podcast is provided by the Joan Levine Collective.